All right, that is awesome. What an exciting, exciting thing. Also exciting, James 2. Right, we're in James 2. Now, I will remind us that this is part two of James 2. Right, this is the sequel. We started this text last week, and I know sequels are never as good as the original, but we'll do our best this morning. But this text is, is, is pretty heavy. There's some controversial parts, some confusing parts. So though I think the Holy Spirit has a lot for us this morning, to get the full effect of what we're saying, go back and listen to last week's message as well, where we started this very text. Reminder that this text is controversial. It is confusing, particularly in the last 500 years, because it seems to contradict the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and it seems to contradict Paul, right? Martin Luther, one of the key players in that Protestant Reformation, he had a big problem with Brother James. Um, He called it a letter of straw, and then said that there was nothing of the gospel nature about it. Uh, He didn't believe, like some say, that we were to throw James out. Rather, he believed in sort of a two-tiered inspirational system, that some scripture was more inspired than other scripture. So he would say, like, Paul was like super inspired, and James was second class, second rate, something you can look at, something interesting, good to know, but he actually didn't even believe we should be teaching it in seminaries, because it just, it, we should devote all our time to more inspired scripture, was basically his way of thinking, because he thought, you know, salvation is by faith alone, we believe salvation is by faith alone, he comes to the epistle of James, and James says, faith without works is dead, And that freaked him out, right? Because on the surface, it seemed like a contradiction to what he was fighting for. Now, you got to remember, he's coming out of the 15th century Catholic church. This was a a church steeped in legalistic religion, works-based salvation, right? They were selling indulgences like, hey, you killed your friend, 10 bucks, you're forgiven, right? I mean, that's that's pretty messed up, right? Like that's something you see on daytime talk show TV. Not good. They're selling forgiveness. Oh, adultery. That'll be, that'll be 550, right? And we'll forgive you. Works-based, payment-based salvation. So anything about works, like faith without works is dead, freaked Martin Luther out. Now, Martin Luther contributed some great things. Um, and we appreciate what God did in his life and what we've learned from him. But if you study him, you'll see he's also got some problems because he's a person and people have problems. And so Martin Luther's problem with James isn't a James problem. It's a Martin Luther problem, like most of my problems, right? I got a lot of Mitch problems and uh, I like to blame him on everything else. Martin Luther did the same thing with the book of James. Now, much more importantly and notably, James does seem to contradict the Apostle Paul with this idea of justification by works and not faith only. And it's just on the surface sort of problematic, difficult, confusing. In fact, if you're in James 2, keep your finger there. If you want to see this firsthand, look at Romans 4. Romans 4, sort of the, the, the opposing text, if you will at least on the surface, it looks like there are two verses that sort of directly contradict one another. James 2, 24, James says, you see then how that by works, a man is justified, not by faith only. 
Paul, Romans 4, verse 5, says, But to him that but believeth on him that justifieth, it's counted to him as righteousness. Right? So these two verses seem to directly contradict one another. Additionally, the context of these two verses seem to directly contradict one another. Because both of them make their points on justification using the story of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them. So are you. Some of you, past trauma just got brought up. Sorry for that. Right? The only time the Baptist dance is during Father Abraham. Um, and, and we remember him as this great hero of the faith. And they both study Abraham to get to their points of justification, justification by faith, or what seems that James is saying, justification by works, not faith alone. So if you look at like James 2.21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac upon the altar? 4.2, Paul's using the same context. If Abraham were justified by works, he'd have something to brag about before God. But nobody has anything to brag about before God. So it seems like they're using the same justification to make two different points. One's justification, faith alone. One's justification with works, not faith alone. And so our goal today is twofold. The first goal is to confirm that James and Paul actually do not contradict one another. Because see, I want you to be convinced of the inspiration of the scripture. It is so vital to your Christian walk, to your spiritual success, even to eternal life, to know that the book we have in our hands is the very word of God. This is what God says. And if we believe that there's errors, mistakes, and discrepancies and differences, then we may not have full confidence in what the Holy Spirit has given us. And so we have to see, is this a contradiction or is it a completion? Does it go against one another or does it actually complete one another? These verses in context. Now, what we typically do when we want to prove this is we go through James 2 and we help see all the times James and Paul are using the same words, but different definitions because sometimes you use the same word and mean different things, right? Like, I love peanut butter and I love my wife. Okay, those are two different loves. Same word, different definitions, right? The idea is the same with some of the words James and Paul use, like justification, like faith, like works. Like last week we talked about, Paul's talking about the ceremonial works of the law, James is talking about works of love. Like if someone's destitute and needs daily food and you blow them off rather than out, that's a work of love. It's a different kind of work, different definition. The reason I don't want to do that exactly right out the gate this morning is for two reasons. One is I don't think this will help the skeptics. If you're here and you're a skeptic, you are so welcome. Bring all your skepticism with you. It is welcome here. Bring it. Even if you need an extra pew, sit it there. All the skepticism, we welcome it. I'm a fellow skeptic, right? Join the club. I'm the president. 
Let's, let's ask some questions. Let's do some thinking. I do not believe that the truth is scared of hard things. I do not believe that God's truth is so weak it can't undergo some strong questioning. And I believe that if you're here and you're a skeptic and you hear me just redefine a bunch of words, though I think I'm correct, I fear that your skepticism will not be helped because you'll just see it as me twisting and manipulating the scriptures to get it to mean what I want it to mean, which is to not contradict Paul. I don't want you to even be tempted to go that route. So I'm going to show you that James and Paul don't contradict via another route. It's the Galatians route. There's a couple ways you can prove that James and Paul do not contradict. One of them is the Galatians route. If you want to turn there, this is Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, and we'll also look at Galatians 2. But Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul's kind of dogging on the Galatians because they have left the gospel for a false gospel. And he says in verse 8, hey, if we or an angel from heaven or anyone else preaches another gospel than we've already preached, let them be accursed. So he says, if someone's coming and preaching any other gospel, it's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. They're cut off from Christ. Okay, Paul's very strong on this point, right out of the gate in Galatians 1. Then you get to Galatians 2. And in Galatians 2, he's talking about his conversion, his early years as a preacher, his ministry to the Gentiles. And he's talking about how he shared his ministry with the apostles. And when you get to verse 9, Galatians 2, verse 9, James is mentioned. And he is mentioned as a partner and as a friend. He gets to verse 9 of Galatians 2 and says, we saw the apostles, James... Peter, John, who seem to be pillars. And that's a way of saying these guys are, are, are holding up the work to Jerusalem. They're holding up the church in Jerusalem. They perceived the grace that was given to me. And they, including James, gave me the right hand of fellowship, along with Barnabas, that we should go to the Gentiles. So Paul is so strong in his faith in the gospel that beautiful old story of Jesus dying in our place for our sins, rising from death that we might rise as well. He is so strong in that. He says, if anyone tells you anything else, they're cursed. And then he says, by the way, this message, my message to the Gentiles has been confirmed by Peter, by John, by James. James gave us the right hand of fellowship and sent us to preach this to the Gentiles. See, James and Paul do not curse one another. They partner with one another. Paul didn't say James was preaching another gospel, but the same gospel. He didn't say, let James be accursed. He said, he gave us the right hand of fellowship. This is the idea. They were not, they were in no need to be reconciled. They were friends. You could see in Acts where they meet up, talk about ministry, encourage one another, do ministry together. They're partners. So Paul doesn't think that James contradicts Paul. Paul himself thinks James knows James is preaching the same gospel. And in this Galatians passage, we see, okay, whatever we perceive on a first read of these two texts 
there's something deeper going on. That this book isn't contradicting itself, that it is inspired, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant, and that it is totally profitable for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished to all good works. We got the Bible. That's exciting. We have the word of God. Hallelujah. Can I get a hallelujah? Let's get a little Bapticostal. We listen to God when we read the scriptures. Goal number one, to confirm. Paul and James are not enemies, they're friends. Goal number two is to figure out what James is saying, right? To expound on what he's explaining, to declare what he is describing, to preach what he is proclaiming. What is he saying in James chapter number two when he says things like man is justified by works and not faith alone? Well, last week we talked about how James, his, his not answering this question of how do we get saved? In fact, in James 2.14, the top of the text, he calls them brothers. He assumes they already are saved. He is asking in verse 14, additionally, a different question altogether of what does it profit if you say you have faith, but do not have works? So he is asking not a question about how to get saved, but how to know you're saved or what profit should salvation bring? The idea being that it should bring works of love to the world. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't look like the Jesus that you claim to have saved you. So in James 2, 14 through 17, we hit this last week. James's big point is to prove that faith without works is dead. And he argues it from this angle that faith has to be more than just what you say. It has to be more than just your words. And he uses that illustration, verse 15 and 16. If a guy comes up, he's destitute of, of, of daily food, poor and naked. And you say, be warmed and filled. Does that warm and fill him? If you go to Olive Garden this afternoon... And you say, you know, we'll take breadsticks. And the waitress says, be warmed and filled. Does that drop breadsticks right at your table? It does not. She has to work to go get them and bring them, right? This is the idea with James. He's saying, you're saying, people are saying, there are those who will say that they have faith, but their works do not produce anything, proving they do not have faith. It's more than our words it leads to more than just words. It leads to works. Faith without works is dead. That's what he was talking about last week. This week, he hits it from a little bit different angle. He wants to prove that faith is more than just knowledge. More than just knowledge. It's in verse 18 where we start this side of the argument. James 2.18, it says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith? I got works, right? Tomato, tomato. Show me thy faith without thy works. That's all good. I'll show you my faith by my works. That's all good. Here's the idea. James is setting up a fictional person with a fictional definition of faith leading to a fictional doctrine. Notice that this is a fictional person. Right? James is not witnessing at this point. He's talking to believers and he says, a man may say, Right? Not necessarily, you know, Dave or, 
or, or Joe, or you guys are saying, he's saying someone out there might say X, Y, and Z. And they'll come up with this false definition of faith. And what he's saying is, here's the answer to that false definition of faith, right? He, he's getting believers ready to articulate and to embrace living faith versus the many definitions of dead faith. That's what he's doing. That's why he's setting up a fictional person to argue against. A man may say, he's getting us ready for real conversations. Um, when I was in college, interned at a church, and part of my job as an intern was to take a group of teenagers to New York City for a mission trip. And so we did that. We went up to New York City. We met with a missionary who lives there. And this dude was a street preacher. Hey, now street preaching's not my favorite method, but you know, when in Rome or when in New York, right? You go with the flow. He had a street preaching. Of course, I'm the only one in the group who's willing to do it. I don't know why, but that was me. I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So I go down to the subways with this guy and a whole bunch of teenagers. And before people get on the subways, I stand in front of them and he gave us a little magic trick to do, turning three strings into one string. It was one string the whole time. It's an illusion. But anyway, talk about the Trinity, right? Three and one and all this stuff, getting people's attention. And then you preach the gospel. And so I did that, right? I got this magic trick going. I think I did it right. Everybody's watching me as they're waiting for the subway. And I begin to say, you know, Jesus loves you. And he satisfied the wrath of the father and he sends the Holy Spirit. And this Trinity works together to save your soul. And if you call on the name of the Lord, no matter who you are, or what you've done, he will save you. That was a pretty good sermon, right? And one time in the crowd, this guy comes to the front and he's dressed in some sort of religious outfit. I don't know exactly what faith he was from. I believe it might've been the Muslim faith. And in front of this audience, about a 30 seconds before the subway is about to take off, I got very little time to articulate anything. He says, so you're saying if we just believe in this, we can do whatever we want. And I was like, uh, no. I'm saying they flood to the subway, right? And I didn't get a word out. But what was interesting is I wasn't really ready to prepare prepared to defend what I was really talking about because I knew what he was asking. That's not what I'm saying, right? I knew that I'm saying, I know I'm saying that salvation is by faith, but it's not a faith that does violence to our morality, right? And I'm trying to figure out how to articulate. I'm trying to figure out how to do all this in the middle of this crazy situation and I don't know how I scored. James is getting us ready for that type of a situation. Not that you're going to go yell at people in the subways with a real sketchy magic trick. But the idea is you will be in conversations throughout your whole Christian life. And a lot of those conversations will center around a true definition of faith. A living faith versus a dead faith. James is prepping us to articulate, to embrace a, a, a living faith over a dead faith. So he sets up this fictional person to get you ready for the conversation. This fictional person has a fictional definition of faith. In verse 18, he says, you know, I got works, you got faith. They're not necessarily correlated. You can show me faith without works. I can show you faith by works. They're not necessarily one and the same. See, this fictional definition, this dead faith the idea behind it is that faith and works 
are in no way correlated. I think it probably stems from the idea that some people have works, but no faith. So it must be true that you can have faith, but no works. Now, it is true that some have works and no saving faith. I think as Christians, we often give ourselves way too much credit for our standards, our our morality, our to-do list. Really, we're not the most religious people. (laughs) We are not following the highest rules and the strictest rules. I mean, the Mormons won't even drink coffee. We don't even know how they're alive, right? We don't even know how they built that temple out there in Salt Lake. We don't even get it, right? No caffeine involved in this thing. It's a sin to them. And so they got these works, but no saving faith in Jesus, in Christ alone. That's possible to have works and no faith. James's point, however, is that the converse is not possible. His whole thing in James 2, 14 through the end of the text, 26, is you can't do the opposite. You can't have saving faith and no works. The converse doesn't happen. Faith without works is dead. That's his whole thing. So this person comes up with this fictional rebuttal and says, listen, faith works, not necessarily correlated. It could be that you have saving faith and then do whatever you want. Now, that idea of coming to Christ, being so justified by faith in such a way that you are free to do as you please, that type of an idea, there's actually a technical term out there for this. The term is antinomianism. Now, don't worry, that's not going to be on the test. There is no test, because I don't have time to grade tests. But, you, but that's the term in case it ever comes up. Antinomianism. It's a false doctrine, and it's the idea that Christians are justified by faith in such a way that obedience to God's law is irrelevant, optional, not correlated. Anti means against, nomian, Latin for law. It's this idea of being lawless, no law. That there is no need for moral commandments coming from God and us responding. Antinomianism is the opposite, if you will, of legalism. Legalism is that we need lots of laws to keep those laws so that God will give us favor. We have to do certain things, not do certain things, so that God will come near us, so that God will love us. Right? So this is not the gospel. Legalism is another false doctrine on the other side of the spectrum. The gospel is that Jesus as the second Adam kept the law in your place, that Jesus as the second Adam died for all the times you broke the law and imputes to you his righteousness, his his record of law keeping so that you are fully forgiven and fully righteous solely based on what he did for you on that bloody cross and through that empty tomb. When Paul preaches justification by faith, he's fighting against legalism. Now, you don't do a bunch of things to get God to love you. Look at the cross. It's clear. God already loves you. But here's something about legalism that's really interesting. 
right? Legalism often, it'll it'll do one of two things. It'll either make people self-righteous or self-defeated. And those who are self-righteous will eventually fail and be self-defeated. So ultimately the pride of legalism brings you low. And the idea is, the idea is this eventually legalism, you don't keep all the rules. You can't keep all the rules. You read guys like James and John who say, if you break one law, you broke them all. So it doesn't matter how many rules you actually kept anyway, that it doesn't earn you favor with God. And it leads to misery. Legalism leads to shame. Some of you here, you hate yourself because you think God hates you because there are laws you have yet to keep perfectly. And real quick, though this isn't in the notes, just the Spirit's telling me to tell you, you are free. Jesus doesn't hate you. He was hated for you. Jesus doesn't have any desire to crush you. He was crushed for you. Jesus doesn't need you to keep the law to like you. He kept the law for you. Hallelujah. Okay, you need to know that. Legalism leads to this self-defeat, this crushing blow. And what happens, maybe you've seen this, okay, is that someone comes of legalism and typically overcorrects. It's like when I was growing up in Indiana, learning to drive, right? you get in the snow, you kind of feel like you're veering off and you get freaked out. So you pull the wheel as hard as you can the other way. And that's how you spin in the middle of a highway. And I was just driving the moped, right? So yeah, yeah, you, you over, you over correct. Many of us who grew up in legalism, many of you who have suffered from legalism, that false doctrine that the serpent has come up with, you have overcorrected, perhaps James people, former Old Testament Jews, I'm sure they had some rules growing up, getting some whoopings from mama every Sabbath. Right? The idea is they've overcorrected, some perhaps have overcorrected, some out there have overcorrected into antinomianism, which is no law. That Jesus saved us, we're not under the law, we're under grace in such a way that we don't need the law at all. Now, before you say, hey, that sounds right, remember, we're not talking about the civil law or the ceremonial law. Antinomians are talking about the moral law. See, in the Old Testament law, there's three parts. There's the civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. Civil law is like what we do because we're in town. In ancient Israel, here's the stop signs, stop lights. You're in town, do it this way. Okay, and we're not in town in ancient Israel. We're in the U.S. of A, baby. Uh, nothing finer than South Carolina. And we don't have to follow the civil law. Okay. Then there's the ceremonial law. This, and this is beautiful, we're freed from. Like totally free. Like you don't have to go to the temple. Jesus made you into the temple. Mind blown, right? You don't have to go to the priest. There's a high priest named Jesus interceding for you all day. You don't need to make a blood sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate blood sacrifice. We're free. You don't even need to keep the Sabbath the same way because Jesus is our Sabbath, Hebrews says. But you should take a day off. Big idea. We are free from the ceremonial law. But on this moral law, Jesus is pro-moral law. Some people believe that because Jesus absolved, really fulfilled the law, that he fulfilled the moral law. No. Now, he was gracious in that he summarized the moral law for us. You might remember that. He said, hey, here's the moral law. Here's the law for you. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
But let me just tell you, if you love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, you're not breaking the Ten Commandments more often, you're keeping the Ten Commandments more often. Jesus, Jesus didn't come, die, rise again. Now he's like, hey, drunkenness is a free-for-all. Feel free to have a little adultery on the side, thievery. Is anybody's game? We're not under the law. No, Jesus is cool with the moral law. Jesus preached the moral law. If you follow Jesus, you will keep the moral law. And when you don't, because you won't, because we're sinners, you'll repent. This is Jesus. Jesus is pro-holiness. Jesus is pro-goodness. But antinomianism is the idea that we're not under even the moral law. Now, I have never met someone who has called themselves antinomian. I never, you've probably never even heard that word. But I have met people who live under this definition of faith. Not every day, not all the time, but it has happened. I personally have met a guy who is in an, what he calls an open marriage because he is not under the law. And I know him. I have met guys who defend smoking weed all day because they're not under the law. I heard of a guy who said it was okay for him to use racial slurs because he's not under the law. And I once met a guy, this is not, I'm not making the story up. I was a teenager, I was at work. And there was a guy who I worked with who literally said, Jesus died for my sin so I am going to sin as much as I can to make it worth his death. It's blasphemous. Paul said, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's not saving faith. Antinomianism is a false doctrine that does not lead us to righteousness. It leads us to sin. The very sin we're saying, Jesus saved us from. You say, how can someone believe something like that? Well, James says it comes down to misunderstanding faith. It comes down to a bad definition of faith. Faith is a license to do what you want. That faith is a license to to detach works. That they are no longer, faith and works are no longer correlated because of faith. And what that reduces faith down to is simply head knowledge. You see, it's a faith without a trust. It's just a no. It's just what you know, not who you know. It's this now. It's faith. It's a definition of faith that brings faith down to a head knowledge. It is a checking off of doctrinal boxes. It is equal to a mental assent to certain elements of Christianity. So long as you learn the catechisms and say this prayer and know that you said it, it's good. Look at what James has to say about this idea of faith. Verse 19. Look at verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils, the demons also believe and tremble. Like, whoa, those are fighting words. James, I mean, James is grabbing their attention, is he not? He's trying to get them to take a step back because their thinking has gotten so bad. 
Let me tell you, just because we are people of faith and believe in things like miracles and the supernatural doesn't mean we're free from critical thinking, right? If you follow this false definition of faith to its natural end, you follow antinomianism till its natural end. You say that what we believe, what we know, what we think is what saves us. You are calling demons the best Christians we got because they know it all. You're, you're, you're so foolish. We have to, you got held back in Sunday school. <laughs> That's a first. You can't go with the rest of the kids. You need another year of this. You're not, you're, you're defining faith so that you're saying, look, the demons are believers because the demons know there's one God. They know about the divinity of Christ. They know about the gospel of Christ. If you open the book of Mark, before you get to chapter two, demons call Jesus God. Before Peter knows it, before the crowds know it, Jesus is cast out a demon. In Mark 1.24, one of the demons says, are you come to destroy us now? We know that you've been sent. You're the Holy One of God. He knows it. James is saying, so the, the demons know there's one God. They're monotheistic. Do they have a relationship with Jesus? They know where Jesus was, but do they follow Jesus there? They, they know Jesus is the Holy One of God. Do they worship Jesus? They know Jesus saves. Are they saved? No. Obvious. No. Why not? How can you tell? What's the difference? Their works dedicated to evil followers of the evil one rulers of darkness. Paul calls them their works prove their faith isn't genuine because their faith is missing a key element. Yes. There are some things we got to know for our faith, but it, there's a, another step beyond that. And that you trust, you trust the one, you know, and trust always leads to works, right? I know an airplane can get me from point A to point B. I trust the airplane to do so. I board the airplane, right? I know the flight attendant is in charge. I trust that she's, when she says turbulence is coming, I buckle my seatbelt. I know Jesus is king. I trust Jesus and give him my life. I do what he did. Say what he said. Go where he went. Be like he was. Faith without works is dead. Faith more than head knowledge is a trust in that knowledge that leads us to work, to action, to obedience. Works that the demons don't have, works that the antinomian doesn't have. This is James's like mic drop moment. Have you ever seen a mic drop, like a real one? Like it's when a comedian is going on and on. He's got like this perfect cadence and this perfect, like impeccable timing. And he hits this joke that also doubles as like this really good point. And the crowd's roaring and he drops a mic. You ever seen this? I've always wanted to do that while preaching. I thought it was a little irreverent, right? Up some mic. 
And he walks off the stage. That's what James is doing here. He's like, oh, you guys got a committee together. You read some books. You decided on monotheism. And you think that saved you. You ended your faith journey. That's where the demons ended their faith journey. Mic drop. Now, most comedians, when they, like, or talk speakers, whatever, when they do a mic drop, they exit. That's how cool it is, right? Like, dude, I just did a mic drop. I'm not standing up here. I got to go. I must be amazing. I'm important. James picks up the mic and keeps going. He's made his point very clear, and he does not stop. He now proves his point by using two real-life illustrations, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham and Rahab. So he's talking about this fictional hypothetical guy with this fictional view of faith, fictional doctrine, and he brings it into the realm of reality. He proves this point, not just logically with the demon thing, but now historically with actual people who were actually saved, and we know they were saved because of what they were able to do for Jesus. So he talks about Abraham, talks about Rahab. So this is James 2, 20 through 23. He says, But you want to know that faith without works is dead? O vain man. Verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac upon the altar? Seest how faith worked with his works. They wrought with his works, and by works his faith was made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it counted to him as right, it was imputed to him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. So this is the context that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Both Paul in Romans 4 and James in James 2 use this context. They use this illustration. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. They quote Genesis 15, both of them. Okay. Then they make different points on his justification. In Romans 4, Paul says he's justified by faith. James 2 James says he's justified by works. So they got the same story of Abraham. They make two different conclusions. How? How are Paul and James differing? They are differing the same way the front of a coin differs from the back of a coin. That's how they're differing. Same coin, different side. Paul is defending against the false doctrine of legalism. He is talking about God providing salvation, providing justification by faith. Okay? He ends his illustration with Genesis 15. Abraham believed. It moves on to the next topic. Okay. James is defending against antinomianism, lawlessness. He's talking about God proving justification. And that's why he ends the story in Genesis 22, with Abraham sacrificing Isaac, saying God. James is not talking about Abraham having perfect works, because we all know he didn't. Or even consistent works, because honestly, Abraham wasn't even that consistent. He's not talking about having even a certain X, Y, and Z set of works. He's saying that he just simply had works that showed his love for God, right? He says this way in verse 22, you see how his faith was living. It was real faith because it worked with works and by works, his faith was, and this is important, made perfect. His faith, faith was complete. His faith was 
proven. That's what James is saying. And you know that if you read the original text of Genesis 22. Now, we're not super familiar with Genesis 22. We know the gist that Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain because God was testing him and Abraham was willing to even sacrifice his son. It was the worst father-son camping trip in history. Super awkward, but Isaac was cool with it. And like, we know all that, right? But we don't know it like the back of our hand. James's original audience would have been so clear on this. They would have been clear that James isn't talking about God providing justification. James is talking about God proving justification because in the story, Genesis 22, as Abraham raises the knife, the angel of the Lord stops him. In verse 12, he says, lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son. The angel says, you believed, right? You knew this. You said this back in Genesis 15. You believed. You was counted to you as righteousness. And this proves it. That's James's point. That faith works out works. That's why he says that it's kind of scary, kind of confusing, controversial statement in verse 24. He's, you see then? How by works, a man is justified and not by faith, in this case, head knowledge only, right? By, 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 by works, the idea of a trust that leads to obedience, a faith that is alive, Abraham was justified, not by a dead faith that the demons can have. As if that wasn't enough, he finishes up with Rahab. I think he does this just in case we think this is for the early Jewish Christians. I think he wants us to know, no, no, this is a Gentile thing too. So he uses a Gentile woman, Rahab, as the next illustration in the last illustration. Verse 25, he says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received messengers or the spies sent them out another way. Again, on the surface, it looks like Abraham and Rahab are saved because of their works. But again, if you know the early story, you know that original text, in this case, it's Joshua chapter two, something these Jewish Christians James is writing to would be very familiar with, right? You know that story and how it plays out. You know, James again is saying that she had more than just head knowledge, that she had trust. We know she trusted, she obeyed. That's all James is saying. If you're familiar with the original passage, it comes out clear. Joshua 2, two spies come to Jericho to check out the land before the battle, before the walls came tumbling down. Another great Sunday school song. They're checking out the land. And here's the thing. If you read Joshua 2, really interesting. Everyone in the land knows they've come. So I don't know. Maybe they're not the best spies. But all know that God of Israel is coming to take over Jericho. And only one of them wants to join that cause. Only one of them wants to join God's mission. Only one of them wants to be in that nation of Israel. And that's Rahab. Everyone else knows the same thing Rahab knows. They fear and tremble as well. But they all want to kill the spies and get rid of the God of Israel. So Rahab knows, trusts, acts. Everyone else knows, that's it. 
wants to be rid of it. Joshua 2, 8 through 11, before Rahab hides the spies in the thatch of her roof, right? Remember the king comes, says, hey, we're here to kill the spies. And she sends, she's like, oh, they went to the woods and the king runs out to the woods and doesn't find them because they're in the roof, right? Before all that goes down, Rahab talks to the guys as she's putting them in the roof and says, all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. They fear and tremble, right? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. Referring to battles they weren't supposed to win, but God beat them. Everyone's melting away. Everyone knows that God is the real God. Everyone in Jericho knows the same thing, that there is one God. And like the demons, they fear and tremble, but only Rahab the prostitute wanted to be done with sin, done with Jericho on the Lord's side. She is the only one who not only knew, but trusted someone and obeyed him. And thus, she's justified. It's proven that she believed. So he's answering this fictional definition of faith with a real definition of faith. You see then how by works, a man is justified, not by faith only. Really, if you get down to the definitions behind these stories, the context and text, all things considered, it is easily, without any twisting or manipulation, Easy to see that verse 24 could be summed up as you see then by a living faith, man is justified and not by a dead faith. That's James's point. Faith without works is dead. Verse 26, he sums up the story. Third times he says it. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. I believe that James is basically summing up another doctrine, our union with Christ. I'll finish with this thought. I know we're going long, but this is an important text for us to understand. Let me finish with this thought. Okay. James is, is, is basically preaching the doctrine of union with Christ. If you look in the New Testament, Paul does this all the time. 90 times the words in Christ appear. And more than that, the words in him appear. Like, uh, Ephesians 1, 7, in him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, right? 90 times in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ, 90 times plus. And you sum all these up and you see that we have this union with Christ and that's what saves us. You see, in our sin, we separated from Christ and bound to sin. In our salvation, we are separated from sin and bound to Christ. We're not saved because of something we do or do not do. We're saved because of what we're bound to. And in salvation, we are in Christ. Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. This includes things internal, adoption, salvation, redemption, justification, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is, in Christ, he's a new creation. So it's our works, our works. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30, you who are in Christ, wisdom, 
your righteousness, your sanctification. You see, coming to Christ is like putting him on, like clothes you won't take, can't take off. It's like a new skin that will not shed. And what is on you, what you are in, affects how you walk, talk, and live. Last illustration, I promise. When I was eight or nine, I took karate. I don't want to hear any jokes about this. Okay. <laughs> eight or nine. Took karate because I want to be a Ninja Turtle and I want to beat up my friend Patrick. Okay. I took karate and we were all eight or nine except for one kid was 14. His name was Robbie. And Robbie had incredible fashion. And this was the 90s when fashion reached its high point. And so he's got the baggiest shorts. Literally could jump off the house, land fine. They'd turn into parachutes. The baggiest Jinko shorts is what they were called. Huge. They were like capris. They were just down to his ankle about, you know, bit, they could cover a car in a hailstorm. I mean, just a huge piece of fabric. Baggy shirt, fake gold necklace, long hair, talked, walked like the man. And he was 14. And I thought, that's who I'm meant to be. And so my mother drove me to Kohl's and I got the biggest, baggiest clothes I could find and I put them on and I wore them. And here's something funny. Whenever I had them on, I used his accent. I talked like Robbie. He had a weird walk. I know I have a weird walk. He had a different weird walk. I walked weird like him. I used the words he used, which were sort of inappropriate. I carried myself and held myself the way he did whenever I had those clothes on. If I was wearing my pajamas, I was Mitch Miller. If I put on those baggy clothes, I was Robbie. 14-year-old and karate, okay? The idea, as silly as this illustration is, you put on Christ by faith, no doubt. James believes that. You put on Christ and all of a sudden, not maybe perfectly or even consistently or in every season, or even notably, but your deepest inclination is to walk like, talk like, act like, live like, pray like, obey like Jesus. That's salvation. It includes our sanctification. Be ye holy, for I am holy. We love the moral law. We love holiness and faithfulness and honesty and putting God first and loving our neighbor. We love his way of life. Are we legalist? No, we're no longer bound to the law. Are we antinomian? No, we're no longer bound to sin. We are Christians and we are bound to Christ and we never him and we trust him and we work for him and we obey him. That's our faith. That's living faith. For faith without works is dead. Let's pray.